Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there. In the past years, I had the opportunity to meet several times with my new guests and to eat at multiple occasions at his restaurant, Coxcomb, in San Francisco. He has written two cookbooks, Beginnings and Awful Good. You have probably now realized that my guest this week is chef, restaurateur, and author Chris Cosantino. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche, and you are listening to episode 46 of my podcast, Flavors Unknown. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S., and every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders across the country. If you are new to the show, my guest last week was baker Matthew Cabon from Magnol Baking in Houston. In today's episode, we talk about Chefs Cosentino for a restaurant, Coxcombs in San Francisco, Acacia House in Napa Valley, Jack Rabbit in Portland, and Rosalie in Houston. And we have a big discussion about the importance of local history for Chris Cosentino in his menu creation. Welcome uh, to the show, uh, Chef uh, Chris Cosentino. I'm very uh, pleased to have you um, on Flavors Unknown. Thank you. Happy to be here. And as to say, welcome to another fellow podcaster. Um, how is your podcast going? I have no idea. You have no idea? <laughs> I, I don't do everything to like measure success. Too many people are worried about like how many people listen to me, how many people give a shit what I have to say. It's a means to get other people's message out. And that's it. Like, I don't know how to see how many people listen to it. All I know is like, you know, I just, I do it. I talk to people that I like that are cool. And, you know, that's it. You know, I think there's too many people who are trying to monetize and, you know, pontificate and, you know, pat themselves on the back with, I've got so many, I, I could really care less. To me, it's really about the people that I'm talking with that are, you know, doing cool things and whatever. If somebody wants to listen, they listen. If they don't want to listen, they don't have to listen. Yeah, yeah. I, I join you there. I mean, uh, that's the same. What I wanted to do is I'm, I'm passionate about the world of, uh, you know, chef and restaurants. And I just want to, wanted to give like a, a platform for them to, um, you know, to share their experience and what they have done. And that could be useful for um, other chefs in, uh, in, in the industry. Well, at the rate we're, at the rate we're going, who knows what's going to be left of this business. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so how, how are you doing personally at the moment? Uh, we're fine. I mean, we're, everybody's doing what we're supposed to be, which is, you know, stay away from people. All my restaurants are closed. You know, I'm just doing cooking videos in the kitchen and, my son's doing school and my wife's managing frontline foods, which is orchestrating all the chefs in the Bay Area to get foods to hospital workers. Yeah, I've seen that uh, you and, uh, you know, some of the team like you have been uh, serving food for the, uh, the hospitals, correct? Like in the past uh, weeks? I only did once. I did the first delivery and then others are doing it, not me. Once we closed the restaurant, I've stopped doing everything. So you have like your restaurant in in four different areas. So uh, do you have an idea how it's going to um, you know to happen like uh, on the the reopening because they have different states. So obviously um, you know probably like different uh, guidelines. So uh, any any thoughts about uh, you know what's what's going to happen? We're waiting on 
laws and CDC regs and safety protocols, just like everybody else is. So what I'm focused on right now is, you know, figuring out smart menus for each properties that are manageable with minimal staff. When you have restaurants that some states only allow 25% of the occupancy, some may allow 50%. So it really is going to change the dynamic. And are you going to um, to pivot a part of the business into uh, like other restaurants have done with uh, takeout and uh, and delivery? What's your your take on that? We'll be doing some to go components, you know, takeaway. But I'm just trying to decide what will be what those components will be. Do you think that this is something that is going to uh, last for a certain time? Like this idea of having the two aspects of the business, dining rooms and then the, the takeout and, and delivery. This is something you think that the, all your customers want to, uh, to continue from a behavior standpoint when things are going to gradually go back to whatever the new norm is going to be? I have no idea. I mean, if I had a crystal ball and I could answer that question, I'd be a very wealthy man. <laughs> no, I, I understand that. But maybe this is some of the discussion that, you, you know, or things that comes to, um, you know, to your mind when you are thinking about the reopening and what's next. I mean, we, nobody knows. I mean, this is the big issue. Like every five minutes, something changes, you know? So there is no, there is no sound answer. I mean, I could say something today and it could be different in 30 minutes because something new comes out about COVID or there's a change of protocols. And I, I, I don't want to say something that's, I don't know. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I think that the restaurant industry as a whole will change. Hospitality as a whole will change. For starters, you're not going to see people smiling anymore because they're going to be wearing masks on their face. So, you know, there's there's one basic thing that we kind of take for granted. So what is going to happen? Who knows? Do we have to reinvent ourselves and rethink the concept of what hospitality is? Yes. Are you part of a group of, um, you know, peers and so on um, that is trying to um, think about what's next and what's the future of the hospitality? There's a group of chefs that uh, in restaurant tours uh, well i mean it's just like hospitality folks just talking and you know about what's going to happen and but i mean there's a million of those there's a million there's a different group in every city and everybody's talking and but then none of those groups are talking i i, I don't know it's it's just all i mean we're all saying the same thing we're all doing the same thing which is nobody knows anything nobody knows what's going to happen and then somebody opens too early then everybody gets sick and we're all going to be back where we were a month ago so there is no so sound answer. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, the, the, the questions are, you know, they're, they're mute at this point because there's no solid answers for anything. So let's talk a bit about your, so you have four concepts, correct? So you have uh, Copscom in uh, San Francisco, Jackrabbit in Portland, Acacia House in Napa Valley and Rosalie in Houston. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the type of food and that you have, you know, at each of those uh, concepts? Each one is, you know, extremely different, but they're based on everything is kind of a, its own historical aspect. So, for instance, Coxcomb is based on the gold rush and the influx of a large, large concentration of immigrants from all over the globe, bringing their food and their culinary history with them to the Bay Area, which is what makes Coxcomb very interesting and unique because it's it's really about San Francisco cuisine. And there really isn't any other place like that. So when you have Portuguese, French, Italian, Spanish, English, Chinese, you know, Mexican, all of which came for one very simple thing, which was gold, 
they brought with them their cuisine and culture. And that's why there's so many dishes that were created here in San Francisco. People don't think about those things. It's very taken for granted. The history of San Francisco is extremely powerful and rich. And to me, that's what makes, you know, the city really, really amazing. And then Acacia House is based all on the origins of grapes, which I like to call the immigration of grapes from foreign countries to the U.S., to the Valley. So all those grape varietals are from other countries, of course. And so the cuisine that or the food that's there at uh, Acacia House is based off that. So you have Portuguese, French, Spanish, Italian, and German. Those were all the wine grapes that were brought to the valley. And that's what defines the food there. So it's very, it's a lot more approachable for the guests when they're purchasing a pairing, whether it be, you know, they're having an Italian dish and they want to pair something with an Italian wine. But it kind of goes, it, it allows people to really dive through and dig into not only the food, but also the, all the different wine varietals throughout the valley. Then you have Jackrabbit, which, you know, everybody knows that Portland was Mr. Beard's uh, home, James Beard, to be specific. And it, it's really, you know, when you look at Portland, it, it was a lot of people don't even know that the history, a lot of the history of Portland. But, you know, the name was of Portland is actually from Portland, Maine. There was a coin toss that was done. And if the coin had landed on the other side, it would have been called Boston. Oregon. So, you know, a lot of people move there for lumbering. And that was the big industry there. You had the river that was able to move the lumber through. And it was just a very interesting time there. So the food there is, is very similar to Coxcomb in a lot of ways, because you had a lot of the, a lot of the culture and immigration and, and such moving up there. But it, the food is very artisanal, very farm. And it's all about like what's right there at the moment. And then you have Rosalie, which is in Houston, which is inside the C. Baldwin Hotel, downtown Houston, which is Rosalie was my great grandmother who immigrated from Italy. So the food there is a, an American Italian. It's like what my childhood was for food. So it's quite fun. Very, all very different. Yeah, but they're, they're all different, but they all have something in common, which is, I mean, for you, it seems to be very important is this uh, history and the uh, culinary heritage, you know, based on the history of like those different places or even your family when it comes to, you know, uh, Rosalie. And that, that so is something very important for you as your source of inspiration. You can't create future unless you understand history, right? Everything's been done before you, everything, you know, and the only thing that hasn't been done is, you know, nobody's walked on Mars yet. That'll happen. But we walked on the moon. So, you know, well, it depends on who you talk to. Some people say it's a hoax. <laughs> sure. right? yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's really, to me, there has to be sound grounding. And if there's not a grounding in history, then it just doesn't make sense. And it's also easier to draw from, draw from history than it is to just make shit up. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your, um, you know, we're talking about source of inspiration and, and creativity. So what's, what's your creative approach? How do you start when you're thinking about creating like a new dish, you know, on the menu or you are putting like a menu together, like for a new restaurants, for instance? I don't really have a process. 
Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, I don't have a lab. I don't have a separate lab kitchen or create kitchen. You know, I just, I go to the farmer's market and I taste things. Okay. So it's not with the produce for you. I don't know. I, I don't think I'm, I'm probably not the best person when it comes to things like that. Like I don't, I, one, I don't take myself so seriously. And two, I don't like overthink everything and try to like spout off fancy words to make myself sound any fancier. I mean, ultimately everything I do is based off something historical and I try to cook with what's in season. And I mean, that's it. Like there's no bells and whistles behind me. There's no like, you know, I just fava beans are great right now. So I'm going to do something with fava beans. Let's say, let's say that you have fava beans, you know, as an example. But then, and you can have fava beans, you know, in Portland, and you can have fava beans, you know, in San Francisco and, and others in, you know, in Houston. But each but of you your can't. restaurants, you can't. you can't. What do you mean by that? Portland's two months behind. Houston's okay. three, months, three months ahead. Correct. But you will have at one moment, you know, fava beans that are going to be available in the right season, you know. And so, but how are you going to cook and develop something which is already becoming different, correct? If it goes on the menu in Rosalie compared to the one in Jet Rabbit or the, the one in, uh, you know, in uh, Coxcomb. I don't want to do an intellectual exercise. I'm just like curious to understand how you approach that. I understand your first step is the produce and, and something that you find that you want to uh, celebrate. But depending on what the, um, you know, like the, 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 the concept of your restaurant, it's going to be obviously treated differently, correct? Well, yeah, then it just goes back to based off history. So like you look at a dish. So if it's at Rosalie, you know, it would just be fava beans that could be put with a bruschetta or, you know, smashed with, with ricotta, you know, very simple. And then if you look at something at Acacia House, it would be much more refined, you know, and you would pick a culture, whether it would be Italian, French or Portuguese. You know, maybe if it goes down the French vein, it would be, you know, something as simple as, you know, a fava beans with, you know, a piece of fish or it's a salad. You know, we do, I do fava beans with strawberries as a salad. So, I mean, it just, it just depends. Like a lot of times I just have to stand in the room and play and taste and, and, you know, it's, I literally do it in the space that I'm at. But what is the most important for you in the, in the balance of a dish? You know, when you think about the main taste of like sweet, salty, acid, bitter, umami, and even, you know, if you talk to others, uh, smoky, even they, 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 they put in the balance of, of taste. If when you are, you have to, um, to balance a dish, what's, what, uh, is the, the key element for you? I think food needs to be round on the palate. If it's too much of one more than the other, then it's, it falls flat. So you have to encompass all of those things so it's round on your palate. So it's all of those items. There is no one that's better than the other. You have to really look at it from a bigger perspective and balance all those flavors intelligently, like all those nuances, to create something that sings on the palate. Otherwise, it's just either too much umami, which some people may disagree with, but I think there can be too much, you know? and it could be too salty. It could be too sour. It could be too bitter. So if you don't figure out that balance and make it round on the palate, that's when it hums. And if it doesn't hum, it doesn't work, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
And when you look at um, this aspect of uh, like creativity and, and technique, what is the, the most important for you? What's, um, you know, you think that creativity is more important than techniques or, or it has to go hand in hand? I mean, we're tradespeople. I mean, that's, that's, so it's ultimately everything's based on technique, you know, but I think that depends on, you can't just wing pasta. There's a technique to it. Right. There's a technique to making the dough and letting it rest, then rolling it out and then how it's cooked. There's a technique, whether it's making of the base product or finishing a final dish. I think sometimes creativity gets in the way of a lot of people because that's when you end up with white chocolate and sardines. So I don't think that that's always a relevant thing when people are thinking too off left field, just. Sometimes people just want to be creative to, so people pay attention to them. I think when you get so creative that you're so overly thought, thinking it, you forget about your customer and your guest. And your guest, you're ultimately there to nourish someone and give someone a wonderful experience and a taste memory. And sometimes learning restraint and holding back from with your creativity or whatever you choose to call it is more beneficial than anything. Because too many people, I think, go hog wild and put too much shit on the plate and they miss the point of what it's all about which is you're there to make a guest happy if your technique is sound and the product is great then a guest has a good experience and you're walking away with something great yet there are people who will say that's being lazy and there's not enough work being done so it's a catch-22 it's like whatever the individual feels like you know like I'm not going to knock Ferran Adria because he's a genius. And I think there was a lot of planning and a lot of thought. And that took, you know, three quarters of a year to be ready for the season. And that's different than a restaurant that's every day where people walk in and they're expecting to feel welcomed and nourished. And, you know, it's a different style of dining. There is no right or wrong answer. You know, everybody's got their own way to get from point A to point B. It's just a different style and I choose a different way. You know, some people say rustic is sloppy. I disagree. Do you think as well it's, it might evolve with age and experience? And uh, sometimes we see like, a, you know, younger chef that uh, want to be creative just to put their name on the, out there on the, in the world. And then, um, in fact, it is with experience and uh, the fact that suddenly they understand that it's about like simplicity and, and let the produce uh, shine. It's part of the evolution of, um, you know, a chef and a chef experience. I'd like to hope it is, but you know, ignorance is also bliss, and some people get in their own way, <laughs> right? We, we, yeah. we see, see that a lot at the moment. <laughs> yes. I think I think it's a catch twenty two. I mean, I think you have people that create themselves to be something, right, and people brand them as something, and then it ends up being a situation where you know, they figure out that that's not what they want to do. I mean, there's some really incredible restaurants that are doing very simple, beautiful food, you know, and it does have a lot of technique involved with it. It requires patience. And I think that's one of the biggest difficulties with people is patience is gone because everybody's so hooked up to their phones and their computers and what's next. And people view restaurants like they look on Tinder. They go from thing to thing, like next, next, I've been there, I've been there, I've been there. And that's the way people's minds work now. And, and they're not 
patient and thoughtful and think it through multiple times because it's about hurry, 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 hurry. I got to be the first to get it done, the first to get it out, the first one to do this. And I think that becomes a detriment because there's something to be said for slowing down, paying attention, looking at, okay, what is this? I've never seen this before. How do you use this? Why do you use it this way? Where, how long have you been growing it like this? Is there another process? Is there something else you want to share with me? Sometimes just people get in their own way because they're trying to get someplace. And we have to stop and remember we're there to make people happy. And we get in a, and, and if you let your ego get in your own way, you'll lose. You know, it's, it's, we've set up a system where everybody feels that awards are what, are what's, what the goal is. And it's, it's actually not awards. You know, if that's what you need in life is a pat on the back and being cookings that cooking and your goal of cooking is to get the awards, then, then, you know, you should have gone to be a, a competitive athlete or something else. Like it's, it's not about just awards. It's about, to me, a reward is seeing the guests come back over and over again because they have a good time. Like that's the award. But it seems to be nowadays, as you're saying with technology, that almost there is like different path uh, when you are in the culinary world and, and chef. Uh, I'm not saying that not owning a restaurant, but being chef. And because it seems that instant gratification and if you want to be in the media, on the media and, and being like uh, known, it seems that it is feasible. That even if you don't have the background, if you don't have, uh, you know, like the educations and, and so on. But the reality is today that you have that type of, uh, you know, individuals and you have as well, you know, the others that you are talking about, the, the one that are owning restaurants and, you know, that I need to have the skills. And I, I see a lot of this going on at the moment. And when you're looking at like the young generation of, of uh, chefs that are coming out of uh, cooking school, they see this instant gratification and it seems that for me, it's a lie. And I, I don't know what's, you know, when you think about that. Well, you, you, when you're in culinary school, you're promised a sous chef job. When you get out of school, you're promised to make a certain amount of money, but they don't, they're, they're now teaching kids how to be on TV at culinary school. When I went to culinary school, it was about cooking and I did okay. I mean, I, I, I was not a great, I mean, I've always been a poor student. I'm dyslexic. I have ADD. But I think that there's something to be said for like really wanting to love your craft. Like it's really cool. Like I learn something new every day. You know, I'm forever learning, forever trying new things. And I don't think that if you, if you, the moment somebody says, I know everything is the, the moment they should quit because they don't know shit. You know, you don't know everything. You'll never know everything. There's a million techniques out there. There's a million ways. And ultimately, we're just riding on the backs of like thousands of grandmas before us. You know, that's, that's just just own that. Just admit it and, and be okay with that. You know, there are thousands of French grandmas who have cooked before me that will cook French food better than I ever will. There are thousands of Spanish grandmas who've done the same thing and Italian grandmas. And American grandmas, it's just like we have to like remember that the basis of most kitchens was women until restaurants. I just think we've we've kind of we have to educate 
in a, in a new way. We have to train in a different way than I was trained. And we have to excite the next generation to want to love this craft, to want to love the hard work, to want to love the tediousness and the repetitive motions that they may find boring now. When you say that they need to be taught in different way that you wear. So what, what do you mean by that? And what do you think needs to be done? I mean, I don't know. I'm trying every day. Like, you know, you, it's just different. The world's different. You know, we have to change, you know, I mean, I don't scream and yell. I don't, you know, there's, those are different times. It's all very different. Like, how do you get someone to be excited to do the same task over and over again when they still can't get it right? And then they expect to go learn the new thing when they still haven't learned the old thing. So how do you get somebody to want to say, hey, man, I want to make that omelet again. Can I make that omelet again? How do you get somebody to crave doing something until it's like they're so stoked that it's beautiful? They're like, I want to make it like that every time. How do I do that? So how do you get somebody to want to do that? So something so simple, like, you know, as simple as making an omelet. Like that, it sounds trivial, but it's not like, how do you make the perfect scrambled eggs that are fluffy and light and delicate and not dry? There's no dish that isn't worth time and energy. If you're going to make a burger, make the best burger you can. If you're going to make a grilled cheese, make it the best grilled cheese. But there's the ho-hum aspect of it. And like, this is boring. And, and I think that that becomes frustrating as for me, at least when chefs are working and you hear somebody say, oh man, I'm so tired of making this dish. I don't want to make it anymore. Yeah, but, but, the, but you know, there are restaurants that have been around forever, like Bocuse. They make the same dishes all the time. It never stops. And people want to stand in line to work there because it's Bocuse. But what, what's the difference? You know, like, why don't you want to learn to make something? Like Bocuse does it, you know, it's been... There's, there's something to be said for that. But how do you keep then uh, your those individuals motivated then? This new generation that seems, you know, that get bored very easily. I don't know. If I had that answer, life would be a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> I talk with you several times and so on. And I know that mentorship is something important. I know that you're lo looking back at your career that you had you know, mentor that's meant a lot uh, to you. So how do you carry this and transfer that to, uh, to the, the next generation? Because mentorship is, is a, a key element in, uh, in your craft. I think it's an extremely key element, but you also have to have people that want to stay. As soon as a lot of people get to a point where they're, they're, they're getting molded is when, you know, people leave because they want to be the chef somewhere. You know, and I think that they're, it's a really hard to mentor people that, that always want to be the boss. Maybe with the current situation, that is going to change because it's not going to be that easy to, um, like, uh, you know, reopen your own business and open like another restaurant. So it's an interesting time. I mean, you know, I've, I feel very fortunate that I have a bunch of, of staff who have gone through me and worked with me in the past that now own their own businesses. And they're doing well and they're chefs of restaurants. And, you know, one of them's opening a restaurant, you know, in Nashville and one's in, one of them's running the Houston property. And, you know, I've got 
one here in San Francisco, two of them, three of them, four of them in San Francisco. And, no, wow. you know, it's, it's just a different, it's just a different thing. I mean, you can't, there's no, there's no simple answer. It, it all is, it, it's all on the individual. I think we can do everything we can. We can stick our hand out. It's kind of like saying lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. It's the same thing with the individuals. You can lead them to it. But if they don't want to take the knowledge and they don't want to take the information, you can't force it on them because they have their own agendas. So I want to come back to something that you said before that I thought was interesting. I mean, you and I, I know what you said it because you were talking about techniques uh, with like those, you know, very specific uh, restaurants and so on. And then you opposed that. You said that I'm doing very authentic, very rustic style of, of cooking. But. Don't you think that in the rustic aspects of, um, you know, the st of what you're doing, when you come to offal or when it comes to salumi and so on, there's a, quite a lot of technique, you know, as well involved there that you need to master in order to, um, you know, to be able to serve that type of product the way they, sh they should be? I mean, salumi is about mastering patience first. That's, that's number one. If you can't mas master patience, then you will never be able to produce proper salami. I think that's the most important thing to understand because it takes time, right? It, it boils down to mathematics, right? Technique. Be, the, the number one thing is mathematics. Then comes the technique. Can you tell me why you say math mathematics for, for, for this? Well, everything's done in percentages. So you have a percentage of weight of meat to salt, and then meat to spice, and then meat to fat. And then, you know, there's fermentation times and temps and ratios. And if you don't get those right, you make rotten things and you throw it away. That's simple. You're also looking for percentage of, of weight loss in product before it's servable. You're looking at water activity percentages before it's servable. So mathematics are key. And that, I think, is like one of the most underrated things when it comes to you know yes it's time and it's salt and it's great meat and it's love and but if, if you can't do the math right then then don't bother you're just going to throw away a lot of product you know because if your percent if you can't do let's just say two percent of your meat weight in salt i'll just use that as an example and you'd screw up the math and you undersalt it, then your meat's gonna spoil. If you oversalt it, then your meat's gonna be too salty. So you really have to focus. And that's such a, it sounds ridiculous, but it's such a simple thing. You know, it's not something that's done by eye, it's not a guess, you know? And I think, you know, then you have to understand the process of, how things work and you know what is fermentation and i mean there's a lot to it there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle to get to the final end means it, there's a lot you know but i think math is the one that's the is the biggest when it comes to salumi that is that is the biggest part of the technique you know then you're learning how to stuff and how to tie and how to dry and how to age and how to rotate products on the, uh, you know, in the hanging shelf. So there's that. And, and then, you know, when you look at, when you look at cooking with meat, it's like certain cuts of meat when making, 
there's like there's a salumi that's just made with like bloodline meat, you know. So there's like all this historical stuff involved with it too. So there's all these different things to like learn from it, you know. Again, it's like math, history, technique, time, and patience. And that's the scary part. That's the big scary part is the time and the patience. Because you make it and your math may be right, but say you had a spike in humidity and a temperature rise, and then all of a sudden you killed all your good bacteria, then your product's bad. There's so many variables. It's so screwy. And the same thing with awful, correct? Because, you know, that could turn bad very quickly as well. And then you cannot, you know, use those products at all. Well, those are very different in that, you know, you're not, you're not working with trying to age them. You're just, you get them, you get them fresh and you process and then you serve. But uh, I mean, cooking, cooking organ meats is a, a whole other world. It's, that is really, truly Cucina Puvera, you know, which is the cuisine of the poor. You know, you look at all the different cultures that have cooked those cuts of meat for how many generations. You know, some things are about making them tender. Some things are about extracting a bitter note to them that you want to remove from it or a smell that you need to get out of it. You know, it's like there's a million things about different organs that have to be worked with in different ways to get a final end means that people will enjoy. Every time I have a chef on uh, on the show, I uh, ask them, I pick their brain a little bit and um, talk to them about maybe to share a recipe for the, the home cooks that are listening and that they could prepare, uh, you know, at home. So I don't know, are you okay if we take maybe like a pasta dish? Because, and and why would you suggest to, to make as a Chef Cosentino style with a unique spin? To me... When people are cooking at home, unless they're baking, recipes are a guideline. Not everybody has the same ingredients that restaurants have. Everybody has different markets and different seasons. And it's really about adapting to what's available in their, in their moment and in their place. The other day, I did a, what I called the CSA bottom of the box challenge. You know, I had a few things left over in the bottom of my CSA box. And I had to figure out what to do with them because I didn't want to, you know, waste the product. And it's really about learning to think on your feet and know what flavors work together. So, you know, something very simple is as, you know, people think of broccoli as like this green tree that you get a giant wedge of it on a plate at like a steakhouse. But there's so many varieties of broccoli that, you know, there's broccoli to chicho, there's broccolini, there's broccoli rapini, there's sweet broccoli, then then you have all these broccolis, you know, there's arugula uh, rabe, which is a broccoli. You know, you have all these like sprouting broccolis, purple sprouting broccoli. So I, I think, you know, it's just, it's such a simple thing as taking a penne pasta, and in the pan, you just take, you know, like if you have very basic things. You need garlic, you need olive oil, you need chili flakes, lemon zest, lemon juice, and you can use broccoli, but you chop it. You peel the stems and you chop it up and you start by cooking the broccoli stems and then you feed in the garlic and then you feed in, 
you know, into the, and then you start adding your pasta to it. Once you add your pasta, then you add pasta water, then you add olive oil, then you add the broccoli tops, which are the soft tender bits that cook really quickly. So it's really about like understanding the product, you know, then it boils down to timing and being prepared in advance and having all the stuff cut properly. And so, I mean, I try to do the best I can with giving people recipes. Most people don't follow them. Let's be honest. You know it. I know it. <laughs> yeah, true. That's true. I mean, I, I know there's some people, I mean, the one that are really passionate about their cooking, they don't do, they do it. They look at it as kind of a guideline. Uh, there's some people that follow the recipe almost like line by line because they don't have the guts and uh, they don't want to try and they are afraid. Uh, <laughs> they're afraid they are going to burn something, I guess. I'd rather have, you know, things like guideline and I'm, I have a lot of cookbooks and, and, and at the moment I have, you know, some time to, to cook with them. But it's, yeah, it's the guideline, it's inspiration. It's like, and it's about why can I, I find you're absolutely correct because at the moment, you know, I, I cannot find like everything. And I think that's the thing. And it's, you know, if it's not, if you can't find broccoli to do, you know, a classic pasta in Italy would be orchiette, which is translation of orchiette is, is pig's ears. And, you know, to do orchiette with sausage and broccoli, broccoli rabi and chili and garlic, like that's a classic. So if you don't have the sausage, you can do the same pasta, omit the sausage and use just the broccoli and the garlic and the chili. So I think that's how I try to look at things for people. And it's like, you know, I make pestos at the restaurant, but I don't put nuts or cheese in them. That allows me to serve the same dish to a larger audience. I finish the dish with cheese and pine nuts or cheese and walnuts or cheese and almonds. But if the person is allergic to dairy yeah, sure. or nuts, or nuts, yeah, then I can omit one or the other, but the flavors are still there. So it's really, it's really learning to adapt to your guests needs and making your guests happy because you know what you're there to make them happy we've chosen a career where we ultimately it's it's it, we've it's basically like we've signed an oath to take care of people just that's the hospitality business we're to take care of people we've signed an oath to make people happy think about it you go to work and you make people happy it's not like you go to work and say, sit in the chair, I'm pulling your teeth out. Or, hey, by the way, you owe $30,000 yeah. in taxes this year. Or I'm here to tell you that, you know, your son is failing algebra. You know, you know, it's not. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes you have to deal with not very, very easy customer, too. There's always someone that has a, like a bad temper. Someone has freaking knows everything. Someone is a food critic or, you know, whatever. I mean, there's, you have those too. Yeah, we do. But we're still ultimately making people happy. And one of the things we have to recognize is we're never going to make everybody happy. You know, not everybody's going to love my restaurant. Not everybody's going to love somebody else's restaurant. There's a time and place for everybody and everything. but if you can remember the reason why we got in this business is to make people happy and to be hospitable and convivial, then you have more of a chance of success than if you try to tell everybody that it's my way or the highway. 
And, you know, not to come back to the beginning of our conversation, but you have, you will have all of you guys to try to find a way how to keep that, but with the whole new guidelines and rules and whatever, and, and, you know, and maybe people not being able to come to your dining room and, you know, that's going to be a freaking challenge. I think that old saying scarcity creates demand, but also at the same time, fear is more powerful than anything. And right now, people are fearful. As much as they're craving going out to eat or doing things, there's a fear of the unknown. We can't see this. And, and somebody tried to compare it the other day. They were like, this is just like 9-11. No, it's not. This is, <laughs> oh, an, yeah, this, is, this is not a visual enemy you know, in somebody's mind where they can go, I can see who did this. This is the, this is the problem. No, we don't have that. because. You can't, nobody's walking down the street with a scarlet letter on them, letter C that says, I have COVID. You don't know. So people are afraid of what they don't see. They're in fear of what they can't understand. And I think there's a lot of people who don't believe it's true. And they're, for all you know, that they're a carrier and they might get ill. So it's a very different time. This is a perfect example to look at history. We had the Spanish flu. When the Spanish flu came out the first time, it wasn't as bad as when it came back the second, the, the second time. So is history going to repeat itself? Quite possibly. Do we understand what, I mean, everybody's pushing in the right direction. Everybody's trying to do the right things. But it's hard to not, under, to not know when you don't know. And it becomes very frustrating when you're in a business in an industry where, as the chef, you always have to have the answer, right? We always have to have a solution. As you, t you said, you know, rightfully so, fear is the main emotion at the moment throughout, you know, like the world. And I mean, the US, obviously. And people need comfort. And, you know, that's one of the th great things about food is that it brings comfort to people. Everything which is that you have been talking about and all this grounded, rustic, comfort food and so on is people that are craving you know though i mean that type um you know of, of food at the moment so there's are they crazy but are they craving that because they've been cooking it at home for so much they probably don't want it anymore <laughs> no but yeah i mean i mean come on i mean the food that is done and the comfort food done by uh you know chef chris cosantino is not the same food that i am making you know at home so there's this willingness at the moment from the consumer that want to have the possibility to, uh, you know, to be able to, um, to have like food at home that is chef inspired or that created by chefs. And so I'm sure there's going to be some, some opportunities, um, you know, for you guys in different, I think, style, different way. I don't know what it is, but. I truly believe the number one thing that everybody wants right now is to not have to wash their own dishes. That's the number <laughs> one thing everybody wants. Hundred percent. They're tired of washing their own dishes because they're at home. They're eating three square meals a day in their house, and they're flooded with dishes, and they're tired of it. I hear it all the time. I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, it sounds silly. They wanted to have some convenience here as well. Yeah, true. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to do the connection with um, you know cycling and then the chef cycle and no kids hungry because that's I think it's going to be even more a need because with the coronavirus pandemic 
it's creating a hunger crisis. And, uh, you know, like oh, I, think sure. I, I read uh, that, that more than 17% of young kids now in the United States that lack sufficient food, uh, you know, and it's going to get worse with the rise of unemployment. And, uh, you know, and of course, you know, a lot of them got access to food through like the school, uh, you know, meal program. So, so yeah. uh, what, what's going on? Can you talk to us a little bit about this, um, you know, the chef cycle and uh, uh, for No Kids Hungry? When Chef Cycle started, it was one in five kids that went to public school, went to school hungry. Okay. And that was five years ago. So in five years, that number went from one in five to one in seven children that went to school, went to school hungry. And that's a huge improvement right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right now we're at one in four kids. So we've gone down. Hmm. We're gone lower than we were prior to chef cycle so what chef cycle is 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 an offshoot of no kid hungry where a group of chefs on a dare wanted to ride their bike a hundred miles each day for three days they rode from new york to dc to raise funds for no kid hungry that event turned into riding down the coast of california that was the second year and then then it lived in santa rosa for three years the group has grown amazingly well. I mean, it started with five people, and now we're up to like 350 riders. So, oh, wow. And, and it's, it's the hospitality industry as a whole. You know, the, the goal is, is to ride 100 miles each day, three days in a row. And the funds, for every dollar we can raise, it can feed 10 kids. A whole meal, whole grain, and a whole fruit. And to me, that's a really powerful thing. You know, I'm never going to cure cancer. Neither are you. But <laughs> true. If, if we give one of these kids a chance, maybe they will. And by giving them the, the basic nutrition, and it's sad that I have to say it like that, giving somebody basic nutrition, that's pathetic. Um, that, that, that even comes out of my mouth. Giving somebody food gives them the ability to focus. Because when these kids are going to school, they're in, they're in a situation or a state as an athlete we call a bonk. And when you bonk, it means that your body's completely run out of nutrients. So what happens is, is when you bonk, your muscles go first, but then your brain fights with your muscles for carbohydrates. And if your brain doesn't have the carbohydrates, it makes you act funny and do dumb things like yell or act out or do things you're not supposed to, which prevents the learning process, not only for yourself, but for others in your class. So by providing these kids with, so it's basically like, let's just say you ran a marathon and you go to school after the marathon and expected to take a test. That's what these kids, that's what it's like for these kids every yeah, day. Like day to day. Yeah, exactly. So that to me is not, is not okay. That's not right. And to see the ability to correct that by just riding ourselves into the ground on a bicycle, then, you know, I'm okay with suffering. I'm, I'm pretty good at it. I like to hurt myself, you know, by riding my bike for hours on end. I'll do it, you know, and if that's what it takes, you know, and there's a ton of other chefs out there doing the same thing. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of chefs who've changed their lifestyle, changed the way that they take care of themselves. You know, a lot of chefs have lost a lot of weight since they've started doing this. 
it's just, it's a whole new world. You know, it's an amazing, amazing program and feel pretty lucky to be a part of it. So have you done it in 2020? I haven't seen, um, or, or it's, you know, with the situation, it's going to be impossible to uh, do the ride. Well, it's canceled. It's canceled, yeah. We were supposed to be up in Bend, Oregon in uh, June. Okay. But uh, we're can As of now, we're, uh, last I heard, we're canceled. Maybe something will come up in the, maybe something will come in the fall, but I don't mm -hmm. know. Okay. I don't make those decisions. I'm just a, uh, I'm just a peon in the situation. I just ride sure, my bike. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And talk about it, yeah, which is important. Okay, Chef, I, I, I want to finish the, uh, the interview. I just want to give your freedom back <laughs> the, with a um, series of rapid-fire questions. So, okay. top three cookbooks that have most influenced you? Oof, God, that's tough. I mean, I have a library of cookbooks. It's about 3,000 cookbooks downstairs in my house. So that's kind of hard to like say there's one. You cannot find a three. I'm, I'm giving you three, not one, three. <laughs> oh, you just said, you just said the three most influential books in your life. Yes. That's, that's really not an easy choice. The top three. Um, yes. You know, I think Jacques Pepin's La Technique and La Method okay. yeah. were extremely important for me um, being dyslexic. The photos and step-by-step -step instructions really allowed me to understand what was really going on in cooking school because they at cooking school they were giving me books without any and i hate to say it with no pictures but when you're dyslexic it didn't make sense i was getting it all wrong so to have a picture to go alongside with what was being said made a lot more sense for me and i and i really picked it up quite quickly after that harold mcgee's on food and cooking is extremely important i think that's i wouldn't call that a cookbook i would call that a book about the understanding and the science of why things do what they do in cooking really made a lot of sense and really changed my perspective on things. Those were some really big ones. And then I think as a young man, I'm trying to think cookbook, you know, I, I mean, there's so many, I mean, God, I have so many books downstairs <laughs> thinking, thinking about them all. Like, I mean, I'm constantly getting new books. I have some in like languages I have to use Google Translate with my phone. And yeah. The, you know, the, the picture to like translate what's going on. Or maybe, um, so maybe one of the last one that you, um, you know, that you, you read or you went the flip through. You know, the, the, there's a couple that have just come out that are really fun. But I think St. John, 25 years of St. John, just is really for me, you know, Fergus's first book was always no you know nose to tail eating was the really huge one for me yeah yeah but the 25 year anniversary of saint john is really really powerful that's such a really it tells a really big story about how that restaurant came to be and fergus and trevor's relationship and with food and having lunch and just really makes you appreciate appreciate things a little bit more okay what's your favorite guilty pleasure food uh <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Swedish fish, maybe, I guess. I don't know. Swedish fish. That, that's, that's interesting. I never had that one. You've Swedish never had fish. gummy? You've never had no, gummy? No, 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 no. I never had anyone like saying that answer. What wow. do you got? People saying like, what? Oh, like a greasy hamburger. Everybody's got like. <laughs> uh, you know what? I had a lot of uh, Taco Bell, and which I like really was very. Interesting to me uh, hearing like, um, you know, chefs and, and so on talking about some of the 
the Taco Bell. Yeah, so that that was interesting. But <laughs> I haven't I haven't had a soda in like and it was I not a soda. Know. It was a it was um it was no, a, I know, it was just a food, like but yeah, yeah. In general, like I haven't eaten at Taco Bell or McDonald's or Burger King in like 15, 20 years. Huh. What's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? My biggest pet peeve is when somebody frakes something and won't admit it. <laughs> they still do that? Wow. Okay. Like, who broke the blender? Not me. <laughs> well, you know, not me seems to be here a lot lately. You know, can you introduce? I'd like to meet this person, not me. It sounds like a really <laughs> shitty person that like needs to own up to all his crimes of like breaking the blender or, you know, breaking the the cryovac machine or, you know, it's like, who broke this? Not me. Well, you know, can you go find not me for me? Because we're going to have a conversation. If somebody <laughs> just admitted to the admitted to something going wrong, when we can repair it in a timely manner, instead of breaking it and hiding it, and then when you really need it, you don't have it, it's uh-huh. really, really infuriating. Give me three dishes that you cannot live without cooking or eating. Well, I don't know. Oh, come on, chef. <laughs> Cooking so yeah, I'm sure. eating. Uh, eat, eat, yeah, cooking or eating. I mean, I always cook pasta at the house. Yeah. There's something to be said for just a proper, you know, a proper roasted chicken. That's always, to me, yeah. something pretty, pretty, like, like not everybody gets street. that. No, like a roasted chicken, like a proper oh, roasted okay. chicken. Okay, okay, okay. You know, not everybody gets that anymore. Um, I don't know. I most and I just like a really just a simple arugula salad. There's something to be said for a perfectly balanced salad with the right amount of acidity. I mean, okay. I don't I don't need I'm not a big, so, you know. So what how do you bring the acidity? Like uh vinegar, lemon, I mean what what are you using? I blend. I do red wine, vinegar and lemon juice. Okay. Mixed mixed together to give it a, a balance. But I like it to be a little, you know, I'm a firm believer in salad after still. Like I like mm-hmm. that. I like that. But not a lot of people understand that. They all think you're a ding dong when you do that. The salad after after what? After your dinner. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting because um, you know, for me being like French background, we always serve the salad as well, like a separate after the dish, usually before the cheese. So and and yeah. And when I had like American friends, you know, coming over and I do that, they said, what's going on here? I'm like, sorry, that's the way I do it. (laughs) People don't understand, yeah. Yeah. So if we were in a different context, obviously, and everything were like open, and we do a tour in uh, San Francisco, you and I, where would you take me if you have like five food location? It doesn't have to be a restaurant. It could be a store. It could be, um, you know, um, interesting food place to uh, try something good. Where would you take me? Um, I would definitely do Swan Oyster Depot. I would do my, there's this really, really interesting new market my wife found, introduced me to. She found it. She's been going to it for a while, but it's called the Parkside. It's such like this mix. Like, I don't even know how to explain it. Tatiana, how would you explain that market? It's like the Parkside market. It's like Armenian and Russian. Mediterranean specialties with, oh, wow. with the with this with the parenthesis air quotes uh, when you say that. 
but it's got like you can go in there but then you've got stuff like you've got russian back fat that's been cured in salt next to this crazy blood sausage thing in the case then you've got you've got all these dried fish frozen eastern european dumplings killer Mm. cheeses stuff like i'm like yeah a lot of smoked fish and then they where, have, where is uh, it? Where is it in San Francisco? In it's which area? Like a couple blocks from my house. Okay. Out in uh, what would area, what neighbor would you call that? Inner Sunset, West Portal area. Okay. I would probably go do coffee over at. I can't even get the words out of my my brain is shot today. Yeah, it says Middle Eastern specialty. Middle Eastern specialty. She said it says in the shop. Okay, it's that's pretty. The, it's but it's crazy because I got a piece of bread. I got one of those like crazy flatbreads. Mm-hmm. You know, that was like three and a half feet long. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It was like this incredibly big lavash that was incredible. It had like Zata. It was killer. And they get pita fresh every single day there. I mean, it's it's incredible. And then I'd probably go to do a coffee over at like Andy Town, which is in the in the outer sunset. And then I'd go to... Kim Alter's place and get uh um, ah, sure whatever night night bird at night bird yeah 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 I she's had her on the show she's yeah she's very nice I like her a lot she's yeah. she's like so talented and her food is very thoughtful and, and very you know it, it's it's not overthought it's very smart and it makes a it just makes so much sense you know it's like you have these complete juxtaposed of things. And I think that's what's so great about San Francisco. It's like, I can go to Swan Oyster Depot and get the best oysters and shellfish and like crab with, you know, the, the getting brown meat sauce and, and then go to this dumpling spot down the street from my house. What is that place called? The Szechuan dumpling house. The one, no, the dumpling house where they make the dumplings in front of you. The one that we went to that day. Yuan Bao Zhao Ji. And wow. they, they, they make dumplings like it's so good. But it's so it's like and you can jump from that to like Parkside Market, which has all these like so much influence from all over the world. And then go to somebody like Kim and have, you know, such a beautiful, thoughtful meal. And then Absolutely, yeah. and then from there, you can just jump over and go get a bowl of pho that yummy, yummy. You know, it's just like. Everything is, that's what I love about this city is that there is such a unique balance. Yeah. You can find that a little bit as well in, uh, in Houston, you know, and then, uh, you know, like the place where you have Rosalie as well. That's um, you know, so eclectic and, and uh, so, so much, that, so much um, going diversity. on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I'm learning every time I go to Houston, there's so much to see there. I mean, it's different. Like you go to Portland and it's like, I go to Eam. And then I go to Hot Yai, and then I go to Lardo, and then, you know, I go to Nostrana for Italian pasta. I mean, it's just, just like so many cool different things there. Such good food. Yeah. And then, of course, there's like canard and, 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 and oh, yeah, pigeon, sure. which is always yeah. like, it's like, I can't, it's hard, you know, it's like, it's so tough to like pick cities and, you know. Chef, I, I, you know, you know that we have been talking almost like an hour and a half. <laughs> I cannot believe fine. it. I, I really thank you, Snell, but thank you so no much for, for your time. And I really um, was excited to have you, um, to have you on the show. And I hope, you know, and all the best, you know, for, for you and your, 
business, uh, you know, in restaurants for for the the future. What's going to be whatever the new norm? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sorry, you know, to be cranky about some things, but like right now, it's just we don't have the answers, and we're all sure we're we're all in a really ugly place right now, and and it's become a situation where we're getting asked the same question i would say probably about 10 15 times a day yeah i, I understand i understand yeah. and people are trying to get us to come up with these like mystical answers like i'm looking in this ball to have to tell everybody what to do and i wish i could and it's just we're stuck like we're stuck between a rock and a hard place like i really i just want to open a pot and all of a sudden like a genie come out and be like okay fix it you know do us all a favor we don't know what to do it's tough. And, you know, we sit on these calls all day and talk to each other and to politicians and Congress people to still not come up with a sound answer every day. It's just, it's, it's starting to beat on people pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, you know, I, I, I just wanted to, um, you know, to start the, the discussion with, uh, of course, you know, that's the hot topic at the moment. And of course uh, it is. Of just course. Have, you would just have two thoughts. I could not, you know, ignore this and, and, and ask you to talk about your, you know, your restaurants. And uh, so to give so, it a little bit of, of They're all context, closed, so. so there's nothing really much to talk about them. Thank you so much. We have to excite the next generation of chefs to love their craft. We are here to make people happy. I love those words from Chef Cosantino and what he said about the industry. I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you did, please share this episode or the podcast Flavors Unknown with a friend. It will take you only two minutes and it will help a lot as word of mouth is the best way to add more listeners to the show. You can find the show notes of this episode or all the other episodes on the website flavorsunknown.com. Please follow us as well on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. Next episode will be a very special one. I am a member of the CMO Club. It's the Chief Marketing Officer Club. And I was supposed to be at their South by Southwest Clubhouse in March. And obviously, it did not happen. And I was supposed to have a live conversation with my friend, Chefs Andre Natera from the Fairmont in Austin. And it was supposed to be about leadership and what every CMO's can learn from top chefs. So Chef Andre Natera and I, we recorded this conversation and you will be able to listen to it on the next episode. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.